It's getting crazy out there. The world seems nuts. Is the society falling apart? What's going on? You might be surprised to realize that this is nothing new. We're going to see it in the book of Acts today. Plus, we discuss the fact that Americans are unfortunately more unhappy than ever before. Discussing that and more tonight on The Deep End. Happy Tuesday night to you, everybody watching on YouTube or on Facebook or wherever you are listening to this content. My name is Tim Hatch. I'm the host of The Deep End, and welcome to you. Please like and subscribe the content on YouTube, youtube.com slash TV. Even if you don't like it, you must like it. So hit that thumbs up, and we would appreciate that. And then if you could do this as well, share. Share the episode on Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, wherever else you share things to. I don't know if you can share it to YouTube, but share it anywhere else you want to. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to the FM 99.5 audience in Rhode Island. Welcome to Spotify, WEZE, Boston Radio as well. And we're going to get right into the content today. I'm going to go to the Deep End News. Let's get it started. Okay, the deep end news is kind of unhappy news. Unfortunately, this just in, this is from thehill.com. Americans are at their unhappiest level in almost 50 years. A new study from the University of Chicago finds 14%, 14, 1, 4, not 40, 14, 1, 4%, 14% of Americans, uh, adult Americans, by the way, reported being very happy in 2020. Well, obviously, <laughs> as I said on Sunday at our church, uh, 2020 has felt like an apocalyptic movie, has it not? Uh, we had the worldwide pandemic, and now we have the uh, George Floyd murder, and then the uh, riots in, in the streets. First protests, then riots, then ha- then some sort of hybrid now. Cities are being taken over by anarchists. Statues are being torn down left, right, and center. Uh, I saw earlier today that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson statues are under threat. Uh, the very fabric of American society, the very foundations of this country are being changed challenged, are being screamed at, are being maybe uh, isolated as unjust eras in human history. And people are wondering what's going on. And unfortunately, the byproduct of all this madness is unhappiness. People are unhappy. Are you unhappy? Uh, You know, it's hard to not be unhappy in 2020. And uh, I, you know, Minnesota Mike over there, wouldn't you agree? This has been a tough year. This has been a tough year. Uh, Understatement yeah, of the yeah, decade. Yeah. I mean it's it's been fun at times as well, but it's uh yeah. What's been fun? Tell me, I want to know. <laughs> uh, honestly, work, working here oh, has yes. been has been fun. Long hours. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm working more yeah. than I was before, but it, it has been fun. We we've got to be really creative and That's true. and try some new things. And I think we might even implement them into uh into the regular services once we open back up to full capacity. Yeah. But yeah. It has been tough, no, for no doubt. No it, doubt. it has been tough, and, and, and I understand that you might be unhappy there. I, I, I think that the most important thing to remember is that there's a reason that is, that is central to our unhappiness as a culture as well. Um, we, we've lost so much in our technological advancements, in our um, individualities, We've lost so much of what makes us human. Yeah. Uh, the greatest statement that God makes um, early on in the, in, the, in the scriptures is, it is not good for man to be alone. Amen. And so what did this pandemic demand of you? You had to be alone. You had to be isolated. You had to keep away from people. And even right now, you still have to stay away uh, to some extent from people. Um, and then there's the ever-looming uh, threat of a reprise of the COVID-19 pandemic, right, right. Uh, which is hanging over people's heads. And then, of course, we're watching on our televisions, I'm sure you are, or maybe you're even going to the protests and you're seeing um, the, just the outrage, uh, the justifiable outrage about the death of George Floyd uh, and others uh, who were unjustly treated by uh, police officers in recent history. But the just the, the foundations of our society being you know, kind of destroyed, kind of questioned, everything kind of being labeled racist, like the very yeah. foundation of our country being re- labeled racist. And and listen, I get it. Racism has always been a part of our country. And let me just tell you, it's been a part of every country mm-hmm. on earth. Uh, we had Felix Shylon speaking a couple of weeks ago at our church. He was born and raised in Nigeria, came to America 
because he knew that this was the land of opportunity. He has a wonderful job, a wonderful family. He's, he's married with two uh, children, one on the way. And he talks about this with me on a regular basis. Racism is everywhere. Um, he grew up in Nigeria, and it was all black, but it was still racist. There was tribe against tribe, people mm-hmm. against people. And Jesus said this in Matthew 24, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Yeah. And yeah. the word for nation there is ethnos in Greek, ethnicity, ethnicity against mm-hmm. ethnicity. Um, you know, if we're, all, uh, if we're all one color, we're going to find another way to treat certain people differently. It's just the human condition. The problem yeah. is the human heart, not, not, not America. America is just the byproduct of the human condition. I still believe it's the greatest country ever. More people want to come in here than leave here. In fact, every time somebody says they're going to move to Canada when the right president doesn't get elected, they never do. Uh, so <laughs> people, people are not exactly trying to find an exit strategy from this country. It's still the greatest country, I think, on earth. It's got a lot of faults. It's got a lot of things we're going to work on. But I think we've got to remember that there is a lot to be glad about in this country um, if you are a Christian, and that's the important qualifier today, right? If you're a Christian, because what do we have as Christians? We have the community of faith. We have each other. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that binds us together. That, that, and I've been telling people this uh, at our church regularly, and we even had a nice, wonderful conversation last week on the deep end. By the way, lots of views on last week's civil discussion, and I appreciate the views. Uh, please share that. If you would share that content with as many people as possible, last week's episode, uh, Unity in the Gospel, a civil discussion. But what you saw there was two black men and a white man just talking about what brings us together, and that mm-hmm. is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we want you to share this content, because I believe that the, the hope of the world is not in having things. The hope of the world is not in a better life uh, in terms of quantifiable things or friends or family members. The, the, the hope of your life is to know who you are in Christ Jesus and to be grounded in his family. And a lot of Christians should be challenged by this last six months to remember that we need community. A lot of Christians like to do this without other Christians. They like to live, you know, kind of solo, maverick Christians, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like to listen to their podcasts, like to listen to their song, you know, their worship songs on their on their iTunes device mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. In, and, in their car, in by their themselves. Car. And, yeah. and they like to say, like, well, I believe God can speak to me anywhere. Uh, or, you know, God is always with me or whatever. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But there is no substitute for the gathering of God's people together. Mm-hmm. There's no substitute for community. And you're finding that out through 2020. If there's one lesson to be learned, it is that 2020 has taught you, you need community. And so here on the deep end, we uh, we bring some some semblance of a quasi-community because we are here to help you grow in faith so that you, in your faith, can learn how to connect with people in community. And we're going to find through the book of Acts that there is... Um, there is always going to be outrage. There's always going to be um, a, 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 there's always going to be uh, the the you know the discontent of societies, the discord of human relationships, and and that's very clear throughout the Book of Acts. And it reminds us that there's going to be an end to all of this, right? There's going to be an end to the disruption. There's going to be an end, and I, and I'm telling you this as clearly as I can. Politics is not going to solve it. Laws are not going to solve it. And even upending civilizations, like rewriting or, or, or eliminating the history of America is not going to solve these problems. It's not. It's just going to create different kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. We are looking forward to the Prince of Peace, right? The one coming back. Yeah. And so if you're in that unhappy category, and I'm guessing you are, uh, my hope and my prayer for you is that through the Word of God, you you leave these moments with joy, with contentment. Um, On the positive news, on the positive side of news, uh, this is out of the university, uh, Duke University, uh, Harold Koenig. He is a professor of psychiatry and director of of the Center for Spirituality in Duke University Medical Center, and he has some positive news for people of faith. And here's what he says. He argues that religiousness or spiritual practice may actually reduce a person's risk of contracting and dying from COVID-19. According to Koenig, people who participate in organized religion or have their own spiritual practices are less likely to engage in unhealthy behaviors like smoking, which, by the way, uh, the research is out, and smoking uh, more than doubles your chances of dying from COVID-19. So there's that. Smoking, uh, drinking excessively, more uh, and, and other unhealthy beha- behaviors, if you avoid them through your spiritual practices you are more likely to survive and not even contract the virus. 
Uh, not only, he says, can religious spiritual involvement impact people's physical health via their lifestyle choices, but it can also have a significant effect on their emotional well-being, said Koenig. All these factors combined can give a person's immune system a leg up in fighting off viruses of any kind. And that is an important qualifier. We've got to remember that we are whole beings. We are not body and then souls disconnected and then emotions and then minds. We are one. We are one unit. What you put into your mind affects what happens in your body. What you put into your body affects what happens to your mind. That's why sometimes you're lethargic in the morning. Have some eggs. You know, get some protein in it. Get some, you know, <laughs> when, when you're feeling down, you get, get some electrolytes going because your electrolytes need to put those minerals and nutrients into your cells, right? So there's, 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 these, there's these physiological realities that if we ignore them, we also suffer emotionally. Um, and, and we've got to remember that the, 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 the Christian life is a life of self-control. Uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. That when you when you control your habits, when you control your lifestyle, when you control your diet, you're going to live better, happier, and stronger. Um, and and you're going to be less susceptible to all of these all of these issues that we are surrounded by. Look, COVID nineteen is not going to be the last threat to your life. It's not going to be it. We're going to solve this. Yeah, there's going to be another thing. There's going to be another problem. Root yourself in Christ. Get the Holy Spirit. Listen to God's word. Trust him. Be in community with other people. Let your emotional well-being be rooted in knowing who you are and whose you are and who you belong to, and that is the church. And so that is the news today. The news is, though the times seem unhappy, there's good news available to you in Jesus Christ and in the community of faith. And I hope that helps inspire you to be part of one if you're not already. And if you are in our area, visit us at waterschurch.org and check out our locations and come. We'd love to have you be a part of it. By the way, Waters Church people, one more week of one service on Sunday. And next week, dun, 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 two services. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and the service times will be 9 and 11.30, I'm Correct. believing. Yep. Yep. 9 and 11.30. Why so far apart? Because usually there's 9.30 and 11.30. Well, because of this. We want to be able to spray down the whole building with the... Um, antiviral stuff that takes time to spray and then dry and then have it reset for you guys. So 9 and 11.30 starting not this week, but next week at Waters Church. June 28th. Yes, June 28th. Visit us at waterschurch.org slash locations to, uh, to find out where we are. And then we're opening a building pretty soon over there in Woonsocket. So mm. Woonsocket FM 99.5. Thanks for listening. Pretty soon we will have a permanent location. Things to be happy about in an age of unhappiness. I'm happy. I hope you're happy about those things. But now let's get really excited about this because we're going to get into the Word of God. Let's go to the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, thedeependtv. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 19 and 20. Acts chapter 19 and 20. And uh, the title of this talk is A World on Edge. A World on Edge. So very apropos to where we are as a country, as a world. Uh, the, title, the subtitle is The Church's Message to a World Gone Mad. The world is on edge. The world is on edge. People are angry. People are outraged. People are uh, rioting in the streets. People are burning police cars, cars, buildings, an entire segment, an entire block of uh, property, private property and public property, has been taken over by anarchists in the city of Seattle. Again, statues are coming down. People are attacking one another. There was a shootout in New Mexico last night uh, as people tried to take a statue of a Spanish conquistador down, and then some guy tried to stop them, and then they attacked him, and then he shot at them. And uh, who knows what's next? I mean, for those of you old enough, you might be saying, this uh, feels a lot like the 1960s. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a reprise of all that was going on back then. But here's the thing. Here's the secret. Here's the reality. The world has always been on edge. Peace is the rarity in world history. If you really are a student of world history, you will find out that peace has been elusive. It is elusive because this world is not governed by peace. It is governed by a killer. It is governed by a god of chaos, and I use the word god there with the little g, not big g. It is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul talks about this and says, the God of this world, small g, that is Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
This world is under the occupation of Satan. Jesus says it's the prince of the power of the air. Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air. Jesus says he's the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 10, remember that Jesus gives us the MO of our spiritual enemy. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Those are three things we are seeing happening right now in our country, stealing, killing, and destroying. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have, ab- have it abundantly. The world has always been on edge. The wonderful peace and tranquility that we have had or experienced at any time in human history has been an anomaly, not the norm. In fact, it's actually the, uh, relatively true that the largest portion of world peace in human history consecutively was something called Pax Romana. You can read about it. Pax Romana means the Roman peace that the Roman Empire provided to the world. And it was through a 200-year period of peace that the gospel spread from Jerusalem through the Apostle Paul and as we read along in the book of Acts throughout the Roman world in major metropolitan cities all around Asia Minor, uh, Greece, and parts of Italy. It was possible because of peace. And, And this is why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our kings and our rulers and our authorities that we might live peaceful and godly lives and then make it possible for people to hear the gospel because God wills that none should perish, right? That's all in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But the world is always going to be on edge to some extent because the world is governed by an evil dictator. He is unseen to us, but his effects are very seen. His effects are clearly portrayed. People hating one another. Societies destroying themselves, eating themselves alive in many respects. And we wonder, what's the answer? The answer has never changed. The answer is still Jesus. The answer is still the gospel. And that's why we go through, verse by verse, the books of the Bible on the Deep End Podcast, because we want to introduce you to the theme of the book of the Bible, the theme of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ, friend of sinners, Savior of the world. We come to Acts chapter 19, and Paul the Apostle is in Ephesus. And I talk about this this city now, because in this city, Two things happen in Acts chapter 19. Idols are challenged and riots happen. Idols are challenged and riots happen. And I would suggest to you, I would submit to you, that wherever idols of a culture are challenged, riots are the inevitable result. Now, I want to differentiate something before we get any further, lest any of you misunderstand my comments about riots. I want to differentiate riots lawless destruction of property, public and private, from peaceful protests going on around the country in response to uh, the, the, the killing of George Floyd. There's a difference. We, okay, we clear about that. I am not talking about peaceful protests. I am talking about riotous, uh, illegal behavior. Okay? Those kind of things have been around the world since mankind has been on the earth. This thing that we are experiencing is nothing new. The answer is Jesus, but we cannot know the answer truly until we understand the problem. For instance, if you go to the doctor and you have a head cold, but the deeper issue of your life is you've got pancreatic cancer, uh, your doctor could prescribe something for your head cold and not take care of the fact that the thing that's going to kill you, uh, he'd never addressed. Sometimes that's how it is in societies. We... We think we got a head cold. No, we've got a heart problem. We, we, we don't have a problem with education. We have a problem with the human heart. We don't have a problem with police. We have a problem with the human heart. We don't have a problem with racial inequality. We have a problem with the human heart. Do we understand this? This is central to understanding the scriptures and understanding the hope that is in Jesus Christ. If we only address the symptoms and never deal with the, with the, real, the real problem beneath the system that's causing the symptoms, all we are going to do is bounce ourselves uh, against walls of this will fix it and that will fix it and, 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 and pendulum swing from this solution to that solution, all the while never addressing the root cause of our dysfunction, the human heart. Now, The reformers had a phrase for the human heart. They said that the human heart was an idol-making factory, an idol-making factory. Here's what that means. It means that by nature, humankind, you, me, and everybody in between, 
constantly creates these things that we will that we imagine will save us that that we imagine will bring us security identity purpose fame glory power whatever right these are idols america's idols are on full display 24 hours a day on our televisions and in our marketplaces the idols of success the idols of fame the idols of fortune the idols of notoriety the idols of power the idols of security I wonder how many security systems are going to be installed right now because it's an idol for our hearts. How about this one? The idol of identity. I want to know who I am. And maybe because I don't know who I am, I don't feel like I'm connected to this, I, I should belong to this group or I should identify myself as this kind of person. And in these idols that we generate, we create dysfunction, societal dysfunction. Because in order for me to have my idol of success, fame, power, security, it might have to come at your expense, right? That's basically what slavery is. Slavery is my security, my, my fortune, my, 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 my livelihood must come at your expense. So do you understand that idolatry is not some theological construct that Christians should just get mad about and preachers should just preach against? Idolatry is a root problem of the heart that actually upends society and destroys human relationships. Let me talk about the police for a moment. In some ways, what we are witnessing today in the treatment of police and the horrible treatment of police in some respects is a backlash against an idol of police that we formed 20 years ago. See, I remember the cultural response to the police post 9-11, the police in the fire departments, right? Remember that? I don't know if you're old enough, but I remember it. Police were heralded as the heroes of the age. I remember when police were invited to Yankee Stadium to throw out the first pitch of the baseball games because they were our heroes. They, they went into the burning buildings. They didn't run away from them. And as wonderful as those moments were and as heroic as those actions were, perhaps... What happened was we inadvertently pumped up the police structure, the police system, into something far more significant than it really is. Perhaps we made an idol of police. Perhaps we allowed that idolatry to go to their heads. I do not doubt that police brutality is a problem. I've seen too many videos. I've heard too many stories. I understand that there are people in the police structure, in the military, in, in the structures of authority in our society that will allow their hearts to be corrupted by what? Idolatry. By the idea that my power must come at your expense. Do you understand how this works now? And so in many respects, we are kind of pendulum swinging from heroes are the hero, from police are the heroes to police are the enemy. And I'm going to tell you something. As much as it was not the answer that the police are our heroes, public servants, that's what they were, it is also not the answer that they are the villains. I actually saw a powerful video by John Stossel, somebody who I've been watching since I was a kid, and he talks about this uh, problem with police unions, and he says that there's um, a 40% increase in aggressive force in a police precinct when a union is in charge of the police because it's almost impossible to fire bad policemen. They could get fired momentarily, but then they get hired again because their union comes in and steps in. And so there's this, there's, there, there's the idol of, of unionizing. What's that? Security, money, possessions, things. I must have these things at your expense. And this is where abuse comes in. And then this is where looking down our noses at other people comes in. And then this is where we leverage people for our good instead of serving them for their good. Understand? Idolatry is more than just some theological construct that preachers should just get mad at and preach about. It upends culture. It destroys human relations. In government, particularly in minority communities, we have idolized what the government is able to do for them. There's this growing trend that believes government should, quote-unquote, take care of us. This is so antithetical to the scriptures, I cannot tell you. But when family breakdown occurs, when dads aren't at home, when dads and moms go their separate ways, or when they don't even bother to get married in the first place. What happens? Societal structures, family structures break down. Needs are still there. Children still need to be fed. Years ago, the government stepped in and said, let's feed them, let's give them money. And it just perpetuated the problem. And all the research backs me up here. The welfare system became bloated. 
The idolatry of the human heart has, has created a problem in the welfare system. Security and peace and comfort come from the government, not from God. And so we've turned our eyes away from God. We've turned our eyes onto the government. And now we demand the government to keep giving us, keep giving us, because it's never enough in idolatry. And then back to America's big idolatry, the idolatry of our own bodies. Sex, pleasure, money, status, Identity, sexual identity, sexual orientation identity, gender identity. These things have become our idols because we've walked away from the root of our true identity. We have decided to refashion ourselves in our own image and in our own imaginations instead of to understand who we are made in the image of God. The God who defines us according to his vision and not our vision. Wherever there are idols, there will be riots. There will be discord. There will be hatred for one another because the idols of our hearts are not some theological construct that preachers are just going to preach about to get you riled up about. They are destructive to the human experience. And so I bring you to Acts chapter 19 with that long introduction to help unpack what happens in this chapter. It is significant for our day and our age, and it matters for what we're going through right now. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. It says this. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now Asia, just so you know, is where he is right now. He's in Ephesus, the, the leading city in Asia in the first century. But notice that the text tells us that he wants to leave. He's ready to go. It says after these events. Remember, what are the events? Well, remember that Paul in Ephesus has been seeing incredible miracles happening at his hands. Remember, he was giving his handkerchief. Now, the, 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 the English word handkerchief is actually a bad translation of what is basically a sweatband for a nasty, dirty tent maker. So his handkerchiefs are being given to people, and they are getting healed by the, even Paul's handkerchiefs. These are powerful moments of of supernatural intervention. And then there's this moment in Ephesus where he lays hands on 12 men and they all prophesy and speak in tongues and receive the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful moment. And then in Acts chapter 19, if you remember earlier, last time we were talking about Acts, the entire city broke out into a revival and they turned from their, their magic arts and their sorcery and they burned their books. And then the sons of Sceva tried to cast out demons uh, by intermediary for Paul and the demons jump on them and beat them naked and senseless. And it's this amazing moment that causes the whole city to kind of turn toward Christ and this incredible move of God has been happening. And Paul looks at this and says, maybe it's good for me to go. This is my job. I get churches started, I get them founded, I get them grounded, and then I move on to other cities. And, and he, by the way, he also wants to go and look at uh, the churches that he's planted before Ephesus and follow up with them. One of them is Corinth, and we'll talk about that later. But he's ready to move on. He's a man of resolve. He's a man of resolution. He wants, he wants to go back and visit the churches, and then he wants to get to Jerusalem. And by the way, he wants to bring money to Jerusalem. We find out that fact from 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, that, that he's trying to raise money for the Jerusalem church, which is struggling because of a famine that... Acts mentioned way back, I think, in Acts chapter 11. And so he's, he's eagerly desiring to move on and move forward in the gospel. And then this is what happens, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance. Note those words because this is important. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And every time it's, uh, the gospel is mentioned in Ephesus, it's mentioned as the way. It's just interesting that that happens. But anyway, verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith. Now notice who this is. This is a guy who works in the town of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. He's a silversmith, and he made silver shrines of Artemis. Who is Artemis? She is the Greek god of beauty. And he brought no little business to the craftsman. He brought no little business. So what is this guy? He's a successful CEO of Artemis Adder Artifacts and Company. Artemis Artifacts and Company. And, and Demetrius, is the, Demetrius is the CEO. And so he's got some skin in the game in regards to the temple cult of Artemis. Uh, she, I'm sorry, I said that she's the god of beauty. She's actually the god of hunting. Sorry, I was mistaken with uh, Aphrodite. She's the god of hunting. And, and so uh, what would happen is guys like Demetrius would fashion little replicas of the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world. 
And they would fashion it just like you would go to the Statue of Liberty today and you get a little replica. Okay, so, so somebody makes that replica. And when you pay $15.95 for that replica that it cost them $2 to make out of, you know, whatever, uh, they make money off of you. Well, this is what Demetrius has. He has this little business, this little, this little company. And it's profiting off of what? What is it profiting off of? It is profiting off of idolatry. Because there is no goddess of hunting. There is only one god. This is a fabrication of the Greeks and the Romans. And so he's making money off of idolatry. And I wanted to say something very clearly. The gospel is bad for pagan business. <laughs> the gospel is bad for pagan business. There's a lot of people out there that want to make money off of you. And they want to leverage your idolatry to make money off of you. Don't be unaware of this. Idolatry pays. And the business is booming, especially in America. I want to add to this slide, there are many people who know they can make a lot of money on your need for acceptance, approval, affirmation, and validation. I was watching that Chicago Bulls documentary, a fabulous documentary, 10-part documentary on the 1990s run of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and the rest. And uh, there was this whole segment on the uh, Air Jordan sneakers. You know, he wanted to actually be with, signed with Adidas, and he actually went with Nike which was a struggling company at the time. It was one of the best decisions that Nike ever made was to sign Michael Jordan. But the, little, the segment of the show, the segment of the documentary talks about how kids just lined up around the block to pay $150 for Air Jordans. And uh, then there's this other segment of the show where he actually decides to wear Air Jordans on his last game as a Chicago Bull in Madison Square Garden, and the shoes were so improperly made, uh, he, was, he left with bloody feet. And so these, these poor, shoddy shoes that he was wearing, again, they, they improved over time, but he brought some of the originals back to wear them. It didn't even help him out. It's amazing what we will pay just to be accepted. It's amazing what we, the money we will drop for a logo on our chest or on our shoes or on our hats. For what? To, to be accepted? To find what? Our group? To find where we belong? Our validation? I mean, it's not about just clothing either. We can talk about jewelry. We can talk about neighborhoods. We can talk about the, the, the cars. We can talk about any number of things that we, we think, if I get this, this will validate me. I'm not against having nice things. I have some nice things, but what do you do with it? Is it? What is it for? What is it really about? Like, nice things are nice to have, but are they really what you look for to give you some semblance of acceptance, approval, affirmation, validation? You go out, you pay an exorbitant price for the Prada handbag, and then you post it on Facebook? Why? If you like the bag and it does what it needs to be doing and you think, if, and you think it's a nice product, well, just buy it and use it. Why do you have to post the picture? What are you looking for? You're looking for something that only God can give you. You are looking for validation. You are looking for approval and acceptance or the praise of others. This is the business of idolatry. Idolatry is not some theological construct that preachers are just mad about. Idolatry will upend societies. And so we are introduced to this guy named Demetrius. He's got a lot of money to be made on people worshiping Artemis, and he knows it. Now we're seeing Paul come into the city and he talks about Jesus and, and he talks about how gods are not made with human hands. And, and this threatens Demetrius and his profitability, his bottom line is threatened. See, the gospel sets us free from idolatry so that we can enjoy what God gives and we don't have to worship what God gives. That's what the gospel does. Because when we enjoy what God gives and not worship it, then we can enjoy it properly with restraint, with something called self-control. We don't have to look to food as our escape. We can actually just enjoy food for what it is, nourishment for our body. We don't have to find sex as if it's some kind of validation for manhood or womanhood. No, we can just enjoy sex with one partner of the opposite sex for life because it is something that God has given us to enjoy and to produce babies and to create families. We can, we can enjoy uh, things that bring us beauty and, 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 and help us improve our looks without thinking that that's the only way to feel valuable. Now, see, this, the, the, the gospel sets us free from the idols of our hearts so that we can enjoy what God gives instead of worshiping what God gives. Because when you worship what God gives instead of God, I'm going to tell you it's never enough. That's why there's a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money on your idolatry. 
You ever notice how there's always a new iPhone? It's coming up actually in a couple of weeks, isn't it? They're going to release the new iPhone and everybody's going to chase. Everybody's going to line up. I need a new iPhone. Oh. Why? <laughs> what, it's got, a, it's got a 24 megapixels instead of 23 megapixels? We chase these things. We chase these things and it's never enough. There's always something else that we've got to get. And this is a, it is so ingrained to the human condition. It's part of our economic system. Case in point, Demetrius is threatened that he's going to lose money if people come to Jesus. Verse 25. These he gathered together. What? The other silversmiths, the other people who work. The workmen with similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our what? Our wealth. And you hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff in here that reveals what's really in Demetrius's heart. This is, interest, this is very important. I want you to pay attention because there are three, there are three idols that are challenged here by, by the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And, and Demetrius is at least honest enough with the other tradesmen to acknowledge what they are. Okay, here, here, here they are. Are you ready? I'm gonna put them up on the screen. Money, number one, because he says, men, you know that this, from this business we have our wealth. Patriotism. Think about that. Because why? What does he say? Not only in Ephesus, but also in Asia. This, hey, we're the center. We're the hub for the entire nation. Patriotism, baby. And he says, they're going to turn away a great many people. And then identity. And there is danger that this trade of ours may come into what? Disrepute. That's, a, that's an identity term. What, what, I, what people think of me and what I think of me. And that the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Identity, identity. Three Key aspects of his humanity are being challenged. Money, patriotism, and identity. And this is basically what happens in almost every culture when the gospel breaks us free from the culture in which we live, when the gospel takes root. When Jesus gets a hold of our heart, he breaks us free from the, in, the, the culture in which we live. And so many people, don't realize that that's really the work of the gospel to set you free from the things that you think make you valuable because your culture has told you this is what makes you, makes you valuable. I mean, I don't have to talk about money. We all know, right? That's like the, you know, greed is good in the, in the words of Gordon Gecko, right? The, we, money is everything in our society. That's why we got through 12 weeks of staying at home. Why? Because the government promised us stimulus checks. Money will solve it. And, and, and then patriotism, some of you, your patriotism is being challenged right now because you're looking at the statues coming down. You're saying, that's not the America that I remember. That's not the America that I want. That's not my country. And you're, and you're getting hurt because your patriotism, your connection to this present nation, this present kingdom is being challenged. And then identity, who you are as a person, what people think of you. See, these are the idols of our age as well as the idols of Acts chapter 19. And Demetrius was challenged by it, and he was honest enough to admit it. And because of this, he starts to instigate problems within the city. And uh, this is why I say we need to preach the gospel, to set people free from the cultures in which they live. See, we're so uncultured, we don't realize how uncultured we really are. And that's why the work of the gospel is never truly finished until Jesus comes because Jesus comes to set us free from the things that we think are going to make us who we need to be. We need to preach the gospel more fully than ever before because when the gospel is preached, when Jesus takes root in the human heart, societal change is possible. Racial harmony is possible. Instead of using people, we serve them. Instead of looking down at certain groups, we seek to love them. But that's never going to happen apart from the gospel. You see, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, I remind you, was started by theologians 
by pastors. Martin Luther King Jr.'s only de- degrees were in theology. He had a doctorate in theology. He had a, a master's degree in divinity. And he preached about Jesus and the gospel message and how incompatible the gospel was with social inequities and justice, injustices. And today's civil rights movement has been largely divorced from its Christian roots. And I kind of know why, because in the 1960s, something happened. It was called the sexual revolution, and people decided to throw caution to the winds and embrace all kinds of sexual promiscuity, and this inevitably led into our educational system, and to this day, we are still feeling the full effects of the sexual revolution to the effect that our young people are being indoctrinated to the idea that what they feel is their reality and not their biological reality. And there's been studies done, even by Brown University down the street here, about how peer pressure has even increased the number of gender-confused children, that some who are not genuinely gender dysphoric feel like they are simply because it's in right now, it's cool right now. There was a huge rally for black trans lives yesterday in Brooklyn. Black trans lives. I mean, this is the fruits of the sexual revolution that we are experiencing today. And in 1960s, there was divorce from civil rights to, uh, and, 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 and biblical faith. And then remember, it was in the 1960s that we had the Supreme Court remove, the public, remove biblical instruction from the public school system. Remove prayer, remove authority, remove the authority of God. And now here we are 70, 60 years later, seeing the results, wondering why we can't get it right. Why can't we get people to work together and love one another? Because you can't bring societies together if they're so idolatrously corrupt, seeking the created things to validate them and affirm them. Because then they will start using one another and looking down upon each other and hating each other because they are threatened that you might take away what makes them, them. That's where we are. That's where Ephesus was. To this end, the gospel must be preached because the gospel breaks the power of idolatry because idolatry breaks down communities. So let's look at what happens to, Acts, uh, to, uh, to Paul in Acts chapter 19. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. (laughs) So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Notice when the idols of the culture are challenged, riots break out, rage breaks out. Christian, be mindful of what group you are joining. Be mindful of what political groups you align with. You are not first Democrat. You are not first Republican. You are first a kingdom person. And the kingdom challenges Republicans and Democrats. The kingdom challenges left and right. The kingdom challenges conservative and liberal. So the kingdom of heaven is your primary citizenship. The nations will rage. The peoples, Psalm 2 says, will plot will take their stand against the anointed one, against Christ himself. God in heaven laughs because they're like little ants on the ground to him, trying to rage an an uprising against the homeowner. They can't do it. See, in Christ, our primary citizenship is in heaven. In Christ, we are members not of our nations or our communities or even our ethnicities. We are members of one another, of the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Before I am white, I am a member of the body of Christ. And there's, a good, there's good evidence that Jesus was not white. Actually, there's far more evidence that he was not white, Right? I'm a member of his body. I'm a member of any color of any person. And they are my body. They are my community before anything else. That's what it means to be set free in Jesus' name from all the little subsets of society and brought into the glorious freedom of the sons of God so that I know that who I am is not about what I look like or where I live, but in who I am in Christ Jesus. And then in Christ, my resources, what I have, are primarily 
are not primarily, are, are completely in God's hands. My, my economy is not, is not subjected to the rise and fall of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. My economy is in the hands of my Creator. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all that I have. He owns me. When my identity is rooted in the kingdom of heaven, a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and in membership to the body of Christ, and my resources are really in God's hands, guess what? I get to be generous with my sociological identifications. I get to have friends with people who don't look like me because they, I'm not bound by color. I'm not bound by creed. I'm bound by Christ. I get to be generous with people different than me. Or gracious, I'm sorry, gracious to be with people different than me. And then number three, I get to be giving towards people with less than me. This is what Christ came to do, to destroy the idols of our hearts so that we could stop worshiping creation and start serving one another. So this, na- this city, this city is thrown into confusion. Notice the words, confusion. They rush together, they're shouting, they're chanting, outrage. Why? Because the, the economy of our idolatry is being challenged. And then in verse 30, it says this, Paul wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And just notice this. This is good advice right here. Uh, if it's a riot, maybe stay away. Maybe don't go. <laughs> if it's peaceful, fine. But don't get involved with riotous behavior, Christians. And even some of the Asiarchs, and this is interesting, because the Asiarchs were political leaders of the city, and most likely they were connected to the Artemis cult. So these are pagan worshipers and, and, and political leaders, and it says that some of them, look at this next line, who were friends of Paul's. So I love that because Paul, even though he's a Christian, he could be friends with non-Christian pagans of important positions for the sake of peace, right? And they send to him, they said, don't go, don't venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together at all. Isn't that, isn't that the case with a lot of these people that, that crowd our streets? I mean, a lot of the people don't even know what's really the problem. And that's, that's, what, that's what we see. There, there's a problem, but we don't know how to solve it in our country. There's a problem, but we don't know how to solve it. Of course we don't, because we're trying, to, we're trying to put a Band-Aid on a hemorrhaging wound. Our hearts are bad. How we treat each other is bad. You, you, you think more instruction is going to fix the human heart? I said this to someone in a, in a meeting around this whole issue that we're going through as a country. I said, you know, you can... Scream at the racist. You can hit the racist. You can imprison the racist. He's still a racist. You didn't do anything to him. Is that, I mean, yeah, that's surfacey kind of justice, if you will. That's surfacey solutions, but he's still a racist. He still hates you. The greatest conquest over a racist is his heart is changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ because he realizes that God, who was his enemy, sent his son to die for him. Therefore, he must love his enemies. Isn't that the better solution? Isn't that the, the true victory? And I understand. I understand it's not going to happen everywhere. And nope, uh, the whole world is not going to become Christian. I get it. Jesus actually, you know what Jesus actually said in Luke chapter 18, verse 8? He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, I'm not even sure there's going to be anybody here waiting for me when I come. He said, he said the love of most will grow cold when the increase of lawlessness happens. Friends, I've read the book. I've read the book cover to cover. I got bad news, a little bit of bad news. Sorry to say this, but it gets worse. doesn't get better. We've, we've got to keep our eyes on heaven, keep our eyes on Jesus, keep our faith rooted and grounded in the community of Jesus, keep our relationship strong with brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Not do church on your own. Come, give, serve, live, do life together. Because the world is going to go from bad to worse. And we have the hope in Christ. And the answer society has doesn't fix the problem that God has diagnosed. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Now this is interesting because the Jews also do not like Paul, who is a Jew, but he's a Christian. So they put this guy, Alexander, and he goes, motions with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. He wants to appease the mob who wants to kill Paul 
who was one of his ethnic brothers, a Jew. Isn't that amazing? There's an old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? That's exactly what happens here. But when the crowd recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Of course, because Jews don't believe in idolatry. They don't believe in gods like Artemis. So they, no, no, they're not interested in hearing Alexander. And so they cried out with a loud voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, they did this for two hours. Think about it, for two hours. Mob mentality is a real thing. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? And there's this big myth and... And this goes back into history. There was a, a meteorite that fell from the sky some years before this moment, and uh, it uh, resembled the image of Artemis as the Greeks had portrayed her, this multi-breasted woman, this goddess of hunting, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that's what he's talking about there, the image that fell from the sky. Uh, all I want you to see here from this text is that Alexander, a Jew, is now trying to side with the enemies of Paul, who, was a, who is a Jew, and the, one, and the thing that separated Alexander from Paul was Jesus. That's what's going to happen in, in Christian community. That's what's going to happen. Christianity is going to separate you even from the people who should be joined to you. That's why whatever, whatever you're fighting for as a Christian, please understand, I, I'm all for Christians protesting and voicing their disgust with injustice. I'm all for it. Go for it. But remember, your primary identification, your primary identity is in Christ Jesus. And his name is the one that you bear. Verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied. This is still the town clerk, by the way. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen have with him a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro counsels. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be set on the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this. And the Romans... By the way, and he's smart here. The town clerk's very smart. He knows what's going on. He knows how the Romans deal with riots. The Romans would just come in with a, with a legion of soldiers, 1,200 soldiers, and just wipe them out. Boom, done, finished. Actually, I think it was 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion. They would, they would just wipe everything. Forget, forget you know, human rights. They would just plow over them. Bodies in the street. What do we learn in this text? What, what is the text showing us? Here's what it's showing us. Christianity is a dangerous religion. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, but you need to hear it. Christianity is dangerous. It's going to upset the apple cart of cultures and societies. Now, it doesn't set out to be dangerous, but the reason why it is dangerous is because it upsets the economic structures of idolatrous people, of idolatrous worlds and communities and societies. And the response of a Christian to the upending of society is not violence and hatred and responsive and equal response is actually peace. That's what we see from Paul here. He lets the society quell the problem. He steps out of the way. He doesn't get all ramped up and amped up. He takes the advice of his friends and the Asiarchs and he says, no, let me step aside here so they can figure this stuff out. But Christianity will be dangerous. Christianity will challenge the status quo of all cultures and all peoples. And though we do that, we do not seek to cause trouble, and we do not join in it. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now we go into Acts chapter 20. And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through these regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, so he finally does get to do what he wanted to do in the beginning. He finally does get to encourage the other churches. He finally does get to move on. And this will begin his third missionary journey. This is the conclusion of his second and the beginning of his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. And he comes to Greece, and then look what it says there. He spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, uh, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4, So Peter, the Berean son of uh, Perhus, however you say that name, I don't know, accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. How many are glad they're not reading the verse of Scripture? I am. <laughs> but anyway, lots of troubling words there. What you see here, though, is, is there's another plot. Look at this. Christianity is dangerous, right? There's another plot made against him by the Jews uh, as he was set, uh, about to set sail for Syria. 
It's a dangerous thing to follow God because the world is filled with idolatry. It's going to challenge the idols of an age. It's going to challenge the idols of your family. I know a lot of families, members who uh, come to Waters Church and, and come to our church and their families are devout Catholics or their families are devout this or devout that. And they just can't understand. They just almost think like something, something has taken over their brains. Some, some weird philosophy has corrupted them from the inside or whatever it is. And, and this is what happens as you follow Christ. It's going to trouble society. It's going to trouble you. Interestingly enough, I said it earlier, this is when Paul writes first in 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the problems that he experienced in Asia, and here's how he describes it. I just want to kind of close out our talk by, by discussing this because it's important. Here's how he relates to the Corinthians the problems that he just experienced in Ephesus with the rioting and the madness. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's Ephesus. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, so we despaired even of life itself. You think Paul was going through it thinking all is well, God is good? No, he despaired of life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The old adage, God does not give you more than you can handle, is a myth, because look what Paul says. He says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. God gave us more than we could handle. We despaired of life. I think the only thing that helps me from this passage is, thank God Paul felt that way too. Sometimes we're going to feel like that. But, love the but here, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, if I have to die for this thing, I know that God's going to raise me anyway. Verse 10, he delivered us from such deadly peril. He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also by prayer help us so that many will give thanks on our, on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. That's what Paul was trying, trying to relate to the Corinthian church. Look, we went through this trouble. We don't want you to be unaware of it. Trouble abounds in the gospel message and in the gospel life. Verse, two, verse 5 of chapter 20 says this, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after, days of un, after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And at Troas, he comes there. Paul, uh, Paul is there only for seven days. And I only want to mark out one more thing, because this is very important for us to understand how we find strength, how we find hope, how we find happiness in a time of un increasing unhappiness in, in a world God mad. Look what happens here. He comes to a place called Troas. He stays there only seven days, and he moves on. And I want you to know that in 2 Corinthians, he tells us why he leaves so quickly. Look what it says. When I came to Troas, 2 Corinthians 2.12, uh, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. I did not find my brother Titus. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is how Acts and 2 and 1 Corinthians tie together. See, he's writing 2 Corinthians around the time of Acts chapter 20. And he tells them, I need my family. I need my, I need my spiritual family. Even, even, even the open door of ministry was not enough to give me what I need. I needed that community. So what does the gospel-centered person look like? Here it is. In conclusion, the gospel-centered person knows that God in the gospel is going to challenge your identity, who you think you are and what makes you think you are or, or what, what makes you you. And the answer to that is I am a child of the Most High God. That's what I am. I'm a member of his family. I'm a member of his body. The gospel-centered person is going to solve patriotism and community, answering the question, who are my people? Who do I belong to? And the answer is, I am a member of his family. Before I am Irish, before I am white, before I am black, before I am Italian, before I am Asian, before I am all those, I am a member of his family. And that's going to challenge you. It's going to challenge your culture. It's going to challenge your relationships. It's going to challenge your family, your natural family. And then money, the gospel-centered person. Answers the question, what is mine? By saying, I and all I have are his. I am his child a member of his family, and he has me. That's what the gospel-centered person is all about. Let the world go mad. Let the world rage. Let the world go crazy. Christian, child of God, you are safe in his hand. Amen. I hope this content has helped you. And if it has, would you please consider subscribing at youtube.com slash the deep end TV. Please subscribe, youtube.com slash the deep end TV, the deep end TV. 
like the video, even if you didn't like it. You have to like it. It's just a rule. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday night edition of The Deep End. I look forward to seeing you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.